0: So my name is Jordan, I'm one of the pastors here at Renaissance, very glad to be with you. Now listen, I like to think of myself as a good guy, but when someone harms me or comes for me, or specifically my kids, it brings up stuff out of me that kind of surprised me. I remember a couple years ago, uh, I took my two-year-old son, Uh, we went to visit some family, friends, friends that I've known for a long time, and they had a two-year-old just like my son, now, they were playing and arguing over toys, just like two-year-olds do, and out of the corner of my eye, I see the kid reach over and jab my son right in the face. Now, it was a first, but not the only time that i wanted to fight a two-year-old. As soon as he hit him, I made up in my mind, I said, yo, we gotta get this dude back. I ain't gonna just let him sneak my mans like that. Now, I have morals. I wasn't gonna hit the kid. I was just going to hold him down while my son got a punch. (laughs) Thankfully, I did not go through with that plot. But what is that about me? And I know none of you guys struggle with this, but what is it about me (laughs) that wants to get even? That wants to repay evil with evil? Uh, Scripture calls it vengeance. Now, it's not just limited to two-year-olds and fighting over toys, but it's also uh, when someone you find out has uh, said something about you or someone that did you dirty, and their name comes up in the conversation later. And even if that conversation has nothing to do with what happened to you, you feel this urge, this desire to drag their name through the mud. It's repaying evil with evil. Evil. Scripture calls this vengeance, and vengeance is the act of taking revenge, harming someone in retaliation for something harmful that they have done. Now, I've been to seminary, I've read the Bible, I know the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. But in moments when someone does something to us, that golden rule goes out the window. And there's this urge inside of all of us, whether or not you'd want to admit it, that wants to repay evil with evil. Now, this is not something that the Bible is silent about. It's not something that you would say, well, I wonder what uh, scripture would say we should do in response to this. It actually speaks directly to it. And if you're new to church or coming back to Christianity for the first time in a long time, and you might not know what you believe about the Bible, here's my recommendation to you as we unpack some scriptures, Uh, suspend your disbelief for a second, and just think about what would happen if you took these words of scripture to heart in your life. Here's what we'll see about vengeance all throughout in every single capacity. Vengeance only has the power of addition. It does not have the power of subtraction. It will never, ever, in any way take away a harm that's been done to you. It will only add more to that harm. So Romans 12, 16 through 21, it says, Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud. Instead, associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Give careful thought to do what is honorable in everyone's eyes. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Friends, do not avenge yourselves. Instead, leave room for God's wrath. Because it is written, vengeance belongs to me, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For in doing so, you will be heaping fiery coals on his head. Do not be conquered by evil, but conquer evil with good. That last line really sticks out to me. Do not be conquered by evil. There's something about vengeance and you taking revenge, which doesn't leave you in the same place that you started. It actually drags you down to where the other person is and it keeps you in prison there. Psychologists have discovered that people, although we think vengeance and revenge is going to feel good, what it actually does is it solidifies the event even more in our brain. So it makes it more difficult for you to move forward from whatever was done to you or happened to you because now the event has been more solidified in your brain. Now you'll think about that person and what happened to you even more. Vengeance only has the power of addition. We think it will make us happier, but instead it will make us miserable. Uh, There's an author by the name of Laurel K. Hamilton, and she says it like this, There is some comfort in killing that which has hurt you, but it is a cold comfort. It will destroy things inside of you that the original pain would not have harmed it will take us somewhere that we never want to be. Now, I know that I am not alone. Um, I know that I'm not the only person who ever feels like we want vengeance because increasingly, we live in a clapback culture. (laughs) Last Thanksgiving, I might have spent five hours on Twitter uh, looking at Thanksgiving clapbacks, and I won't lie, some of those things have me bent over in laughter. Uh, What you doing taking extra plates? What are you doing with Grandma's disability check every month? <laughs> Don't just take it, clap back. Your auntie, your hair feels so dry. Me, just like your turkey. <laughs> and th- number three, this one hurts a little bit. I won't lie. Hey, I heard, uncle, I heard your grades are struggling. Me, not as bad as your hairline. Ugh. That's over the line, that's over the line, that should not be tolerated. Now be honest, it feels good, right? We think it feels good. When someone comes for you, not today, boo-boo, you have come for the wrong one. We call it being petty, we call it the clap back, but in actuality, it's vengeance. It sows more discord and disunity in relationships. It only has the power of addition. It does not have the power of subtraction. Uh, one place that I see this more than anything else is actually in people's marriages. And if you, ever, if you are married now or if you ever want to be married, listen very closely to this. What will destroy your relationship faster than anything is not learning truly what it means to forgive and to accept a sinner for what they are, a sinner. These sinners will sin against you. Now, the Bible describes sin as missing the mark. The reason that it's so easy for you to be selfish is because you're a sinner. I'm a sinner. We are all sinners. We will never consistently hit the mark that God wants for us. You will have anger in situations where you weren't supposed to be that angry. And you might even use some of your anger destructively in people's lives. If you do not put what we're saying in today into place in your life, you will destroy your relationships. Now, not only will you destroy your relationships, but this one is also extremely true for the Christians in the room. Um, The the believability of Jesus and how real he is in your life depends on whether or not you are a person of vengeance or a person of grace. People in your life might not know all of Jesus' parables they might not know all of his teachings. They might not have memorized the Sermon on the Mount, but I guarantee you they all know that Jesus Christ was gracious to people that did not deserve grace. In a few weeks, we'll be having our Good Friday service where we'll be looking at Jesus on the cross. And while he's hanging there on the cross, he's looking out at Roman soldiers who are mocking him, people who are dividing, uh, who are gambling over his clothes. He's thinking about the disciples who have deserted him. He's he's looking at thieves on the cross who are mocking him. He's just thinking about people who are punching him in the face. What does Jesus respond with? Father, forgive them for they don't know what they do. Jesus knew that vengeance only has the power of addition but it does not have the power of subtraction. And how is it that you and I could be in a life-giving relationship with Jesus, the one who prayed those words, but you and I are petty? It calls the believability of what we know about Jesus into question when we repay evil with evil. One of the books in the Bible says that your life is actually an epistle. Your life is a letter that people read. Some people will never crack open the Bible, but they will look at your life. And they'll see that you are the person who repays evil with evil. How believable does that make Jesus? Not only that, but to seek revenge is not what Scripture calls a life that is in line with the gospel. Uh, What is the gospel message? We see it in Romans 5, uh, 6 through 8. It says, For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For rarely will someone die for a just person, though for a good person perhaps someone might even dare to die. But God proves his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Vengeance, the act of repaying evil for evil, is not a life in line with the gospel because the gospel message is that we deserved God's wrath and God gave us Christ instead. How could we be changed by grace, live in grace, swim in grace, be in a community of grace, and live by vengeance? Now, two disclaimers before we really get into uh, the main text for today, Um, and these are the parts that, man, if you leave service not getting these two things, I will be really disappointed. Um, And it's going to please don't miss this. This first thing, we're not talking about ignoring evil. We are not talking about ignoring evil. Ignoring evil is evil. Jim Crow, slavery, misogyny, things persist because good people don't say anything. At no point today are we saying that if someone does something to you, you should just ignore it. There is a different category in scripture for how to respond to wrong in pursuing justice, but justice and vengeance are not the same thing. So please do not walk out of here saying that we said you should ignore injustice and um, you should ignore terrible things that have happened to you or anything. Um, I grew up in a church tradition where I don't know if you guys grew up in an old school black church, but there was this one saying, touch not mine anointed. And they attached that to every pastor so pastors could live like the devil and still keep their job all under the guise that you couldn't say anything to them. You had to ignore it because it was a man of God. There is no category, there's nothing in the Bible that says that we should ignore evil. We should ignore injustice. We should, ex- we should ignore anything that's been uh, done that's wrong, especially by those in power. But vengeance only has a power of addition. It does not have the power of subtraction. Uh, secondly, I think a lot of times when we're talking about vengeance and uh, refraining from it, a lot of people think that's going to make you weak. That you're going to be weak unless you go out and get back what was done to you. And uh, the Bible uh, doesn't give us this instruction to make you weak. Uh, Jackie Hill Perry says it best. She says, the definition of meekness, and meekness is the character of Christ, is strength under control. So even though you have the freedom to do it, the strength to do it, meekness says it's not always wise to do it. It's strength under control. Uh, A couple years ago, I was lifting weights with a guy who was like super strong And when we first got to the gym, we'd get there in the morning, and I would watch the amount of weight that he was putting on, and I was like, oh, he's not putting that much more weight on than I am. I'm like, you know what I'm saying? We're basically, you know what I'm saying, the same amount of, we're basically the same thing. (laughs) But the way he would lift weights was under control. I would take it and just, ah! (laughs) But he was just nice and quiet, just quietly breathing in, breathing out. Real strength is strength under control. That's what you see in the life and the character of Jesus. It wasn't that he was weak. He was the strongest man ever, that he refused to be brought down to the level of the offenders. So this text that we're going to look at today is in our series. We've been unpacking stuff from Genesis. And a quick note about this text. It is one that involves a conversation of sexual violence. So a brief trigger warning about what we're going to read um, to this to to see the anatomy of vengeance. Another quick note is, as you read the Bible, there are different categories of books. Genesis is a historical book. History books give the history of what happened. It is not a critique of what was good, what was bad. It's just simply saying, this is what happened. It comes from Genesis 34. I'm going to read it. It's a long text, so you can see it on the screens beside me. It says, Leah's daughter, Leah's daughter Dinah, whom Leah bore to Jacob went out to see some young woman of the area. When Shechem, the son of Hamor, Hamor the Hivite, who was region's chieftain, saw her, he took her and he raped her. He became infatuated with Jacob's daughter Dinah. He loved the young girl and spoke tenderly to her. Get me this girl as a wife, he told his father. Jacob heard that Shechem had defiled his daughter Dinah, but since his sons were with the livestock in the field, he remained silent until they returned. Meanwhile, Shechem's father, Hamor, came to speak with Jacob. Jacob's sons returned from the field when they heard about the incident and were deeply grieved and very angry, for Shechem had committed an outrage against Israel by raping Jacob's daughter, and such a thing should not be done. Hamor said to Jacob's sons, my son Shechem has his heart set on your daughter. Please give him to her as his wife. Intermarry with us. Give us your daughters and take our daughters for yourselves. Live with us. The land before, This land is before you. Settle here, move about, and acquire property in it. Then Shechem said to Dinah's father and brothers, Grant me this favor, and I'll give you whatever you say. Demand of me a high compensation and gift, and I'll give you what you ask me. Just give the girl to be my wife. But Jacob's sons answered Shechem and his father Hamar deceitfully, because he had defiled their sister Dinah. We cannot do this thing, they said to them. Giving our sister to an uncircumcised man is a disgrace to us. We will agree with you only on this one condition. If all your males are circumcised as we are, then we will give you our daughters, take your daughters for ourselves, live with you, and become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and go. Their words seemed good to Hamer and his son Shechem. The young man did not delay doing this because he was delighted to, with Jacob's daughter. Now he was the most important in all his father's family, so Hamor and his son Shechem went to the gate of their city and spoke to all the men of their city. These men are peaceful toward us, they said. Let them live in our land and move about in it, for indeed the region is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters as our wives and give our, give our daughters to them. But the men will agree to live with us and be one people only on this one condition, if all our men are circumcised as they are. Won't their livestock, their possessions, and all their animals become ours? Only let us agree with them, and they will live with us. All the men who had come to the city gates listened to Hamar and his son Shechem, and all those men were circumcised. On the third day, when they were still in pain, two of Jacob's sons, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, Took their swords, went into the unsuspecting city, and killed every male. They killed Hamar and his son Shechem with their swords, took Dinah from Shechem's house, and went away. Jacob's sons came to the slaughter and plundered the city because their sister had been defiled. They took their flocks, herds, donkeys, and whatever was in the, in the field, was in the city and in the field. They captured all their possessions, dependents, and wives, and plundered everything in the houses. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have brought great trouble on me, making me odious to the inhabitants of the land. The Canaanites and the Perizzites, we are few in number. If they unite against me and attack me, I and my household will be destroyed. But they answered, Should he treat our sister like a prostitute? Now, really quickly, before we unpack the, the um, anatomy of vengeance, um, one thing that I wanted to note um, in this week's community groups, we're not going to spend time focusing in on sexual violence. One of the things that we hope to bring at some point in Renaissance is a really appropriate setting for survivors of sexual violence and sexual assault to be able to process what has happened to them in community. The community groups this week are not that. So. If you see anybody in your community group um, asking someone to share their story, please gently but immediately correct them. Um, The text that we'll be using for our community groups this week is a Romans 12 one, not this one. Uh, We do want to have a really good conversation on vengeance and how it might play in our heart, but we absolutely do not want to to add more trauma to someone by making them relive their experience in an inappropriate setting. You guys got that? Great. All right, so what is the anatomy of vengeance? Um, first, you see that it's a response to a genuine wrong. So man, I, I think one of the, the messier parts of Scripture is that it talks about the things that have been done to people, even some pretty heinous things. And God remembers and God records wrongs that have been done to his people. I don't think for any reason that God wants us to ignore or shut out or push aside genuine wrong that's been done to us. And the second thing we see in this is the shock and the grief and the anger over this genuine wrong that has been done. Again, we are not saying things should be ignored or pushed aside. These things should, in our life, when someone harms you, when someone harms your kids, when someone does something to you, it should bring about shock, grief, and anger. But there's a difference between constructive anger and destructive anger. Constructive anger seeks justice and restoration. Destructive anger seeks pain, and it only adds to the underlying situation. The third thing we see in this text about the anatomy of vengeance is this fear of them getting away with it, that unless we take matters into our own hands, they're gonna walk away scot-free. Now, the only t- there are more than two alternatives to this problem. It is not either they walk away free or we harm them. The Bible tells us earlier in the text that we read To leave room for God's vengeance, that God promises us that He will repay everyone for all of their deeds. It's not a topic that we talk about a lot, but it's something called God's wrath and God's judgment, that God promises to repay every deed according to their to its act. In Hebrews 4 and 13, it says, No creature is hidden from him. But all things, all things, all things are naked and exposed to the eyes of whom we must give an account. There is someone who we have to give an account to. It's not ourselves, and it's God. And God promises to repay everyone according to their deeds. Now, that's a scary concept. It's a scary concept that should be making us think about the grace of God we need in our own lives. But more importantly, it's also a concept that is meant to give us reassurance that people are never walking away and getting away with things scot-free. And the last thing we see is this act of harm to destroy them in verses 13 through 29, where the brothers uh, take matters into their own hands, and they harm them. They kill them. Now, it's interesting. They didn't just go after Shechem, the guy who was the one who committed the act. They killed every male in the village. Why is that? Because vengeance and a vengeful heart always escalates. It's never isolated to the one person. Once you let vengeance come into your heart, it's bringing all of its friends with it. It's not localized, and not only that, but we see the effects of their vengeance, more and more harm. That their father Jacob is saying, now you've brought so much more disunity and distress to us in this entire village. We're always gonna continue to be a people at war. That's because vengeance only has a power of addition. Never the power of subtraction. Now, this text speaks much more to uh, than just simple vengeance. Um, it's about something that is happening in our community, in our city, and in our world way more times than uh, we would ever want to acknowledge or admit. Um, it's sexual violence. Now, one of the things that I think the church is extremely complicit in is our, our silence about things like sexual violence and I heard a phrase which was uh, silence is not prophetic. And we by no means feel like we have all of the answers and how we could talk about this in the most constructive way but we wanted to very gently ease ourselves into the conversation and to that end we have my friend Courtney Contreras. Um, She works at Restore and she is a community group leader here and she's gonna talk to us um, about how best to respond to sexual violence. So please give Courtney a round of applause.
1: What does it mean then to respond well to injustice, and particularly to sexual violence? Before I start, I'm just going to kind of set the scene for us. Nearly half of American women have experienced sexual violence, sexual assault, or unwanted sexual contact. While the experience of sexual violence is not exclusively a female issue, we have to acknowledge that the overwhelming majority of survivors are women and girls. One out of every five women has been raped, and we know that women of color are disproportionately affected by this this statistic. This is not how it's supposed to be, and this is, like Jordan said, a genuine injustice. So for those of you that I don't know, my name is Courtney, uh, and I'm a member here at Renaissance, but I'm also a clinical social worker, and I've gotten to work in the field of gender-based violence for about the last five years. And I say this because I have the privilege this morning of taking the next bit of time to talk about what it means for us as a church to respond well to sexual violence, to injustice in a way that reflects Jesus, but also integrates an understanding of how trauma can impact healing and restoration. There are four categories of invitation that I'm going to walk us through this morning. We'll spend most of our time on the first two. Lament, listen, learn, and lead. Lament, listen, learn, and lead. These categories are going to help us walk into what it means to respond well uh, and try to avoid a response of vengeance. So let's start with lament. This one might seem pretty obvious, but I think we oftentimes get the wrong idea of what lament is. And I would Kind of put it out there that this might actually be the first and most important step for us to take, especially as we've dug into what is the anatomy of vengeance. As Jordan mentioned, when we encounter injustice, particularly when we encounter sexual violence, we instinctively feel angry, shock, grief. In response to these emotions, we see lament practiced throughout the Bible by David, in the Psalms, by Job when he's going through his trials. But in many ways, the modern church has kind of lost a sense of what lamenting really means. In its simplest definition, lament is an expression of deep regret, grief, or sorrow. But really, it's much more than that. Some of you may remember when we were going through the sermon series on race, uh, Soon Chan Ra, a professor at a seminary in Chicagoland, spoke to us about lament. In his book uh, called Prophetic Lament, he says the following. Lament does not simply explain away suffering. Biblical lament calls for honesty and truth-telling about the broken state of society and the individual. It allows for the crying out of existing injustices. Lament is not a passive act, but a subversive act of protest against the status quo. The spiritual practice of lament also acknowledges the source of hope. Lament helps the people of God find hope, even in the midst of suffering. So if we just recap that for a second, we can see that lament, although it's often perceived this way, is is not passive. It's very active. It involves speaking the truth of brokenness and injustice, crying out against the injustice. It's an act of protest, even. And then it's something that points us actively to hope. For me, in my experience as a trauma therapist, I'm constantly vicariously immersed in stories of sexual violence, of trauma, incest, rape, human trafficking, on a daily basis. But it wasn't until later in my career in my time at Restore that I truly learned what it means to practice actively uh, lament in a routine way. In the first few years um, that I was working in this field, I found that every once in a while, when stories of injustice uh, would just kind of build up over time, I would start to become really disconnected and really um, overwhelmed by what I was hearing. I naturally and maybe even subconsciously would start to turn towards vengeance. I would start to lose hope that things were going to change the despair got to me and, and like Jordan said, those feelings were not localized or targeted, right? I was angry and I became that woman on the subway who would just like give you a dirty look for tapping me on the shoulder or that, that woman who just generally kind of hates men. Um, but the worst part is though that when that stuff was building up to me, I even started to lose focus of uh, having empathy for the women that I was working with. Sometimes I even found myself minimizing their experience, their suffering, judging them, or even blaming them. However, once I learned how to take the time to routinely lament, I was able, and I'm able, to sit in a space of injustice in the depth of my own emotions without starting to seek destruction. For me, this looks like booking a counseling room or going to a chapel nearby our office and just sitting before the Lord and tearfully stating what I'm seeing, crying out at the injustice that I'm hearing in the lives of the women that I get to serve. And then I can turn towards praise and acknowledge the person of God as the true source of hope. Lament's going to look different for everyone. Some of you are not criers but it's something that we can do individually, and it's also something that we're gonna do communally. Uh, My coworker, Chris Muller, and also a a member here at Renaissance, wrote a prayer for us, and so we're actually gonna take that first step today of communal lament at the end uh, of service. Let's move to the second category of invitation that I'm calling listen. This category, listening, is an invitation for us as a church to be a space where survivors' stories and voices are heard and believed, and to be a people that resist the temptation to blame, judge, or minimize a survivor's experience. But it's impossible to really explain why this is important without talking just a little bit about trauma. So let's just start with the definition. Trauma, in simple terms, is an event In which we perceive that our life or the life of someone that we love is in danger. It includes intense fear, helplessness, loss of control, and like the definition says, perceived threat of harm. Now, we hear this word a lot, and Jordan has said this before. We hear trauma and traumatic really often in today's, you know, speech. And I want to point out that this may have caused us to lose some understanding of what the true impact of trauma is, right? We, we go to an ice cream shop and they're out of our flavor and we say, it was so traumatic, or our kid is having a, a tantrum in the middle of Target and we just are like, oh, we, this was so traumatic. But trauma is really different. There's a difference between trauma and disappointment, stress, or frustration. So to give you an example of how traumatic experiences and memories are distinct, I want you all to just take a moment and think about how you got to church this morning. Close your eyes if you want to. For many of you, especially if you have kids, getting ready and getting here can be stressful. But for most of us, we didn't undergo a trauma to get here. So you're probably able to recall step by step what you had to do to get from your bed this morning to here sitting in the auditorium. Most of you woke up, hopefully brushed your teeth, ate, got dressed, and this is often my experience. It may have happened to some of you. You go outside and the bus is just about to pass by you, so you have to kind of run to get it. It's really stressful, Um, but then you make it and you you get to church. So you can probably recount that, but as you're recounting it, chances are that you're not going to feel the anger that you felt when you saw that bus driving by you. You're not going to feel the adrenaline that your body was going through as you were running to catch that bus. You remember that it happened, but you're not necessarily going to re-experience of it. We're in a calm, safe auditorium, and, and most of your bodies and minds have acclimated to the environment. However... Chances are that many of us in this room have experienced a trauma, whether it be a physical accident, a natural disaster, or sexual violence. And when we recall those events or are triggered to remember them by a certain sound, smell, or sight, our body responds. Your heart might start quickly beating, you may become short of breath, or even experience an intense and overwhelming surge of fear or anger. Or shame that seemingly comes out of nowhere. We often can't remember details of time or sequence and thoughts can become blurred or confusing. When we experience trauma, intense fear, helplessness, loss of control, our brain switches into autopilot, so that's that fight, flight, or freeze And everything that happens in that moment is therefore stored actually in a different part of our brain with the original feelings, the original thoughts, the original body sensations, whether it happened yesterday or whether it happened 20 years ago. So while it's often invisible to people on the outside and maybe even unconscious to us, the impact of trauma is extensive, affecting our cognition, our memory, emotions, and physiology. I'm going to put this slide up here. I'm not going to read through it. But you can just kind of see how overwhelming that feels. This is a list of symptoms that you might be experiencing after having gone through a trauma. And you can kind of flip back and forth between them again. This is overwhelming. This is a lot. And all of this might be even hidden. You might be going through this and and no one can really tell. Why is this important? This is important because much of the time, and maybe most of the time, sexual violence is traumatic. Dr. Diane Langberg, a Christian and leading psychologist in the field of sexual violence, says the following. The fear, helplessness, and the threat of non-existence involved in trauma silences persons, alienates them, and renders them powerless. Trauma is, by definition, an injury done to personhood, a shattering of the image of God, God's people, as reflected in voice, relationship, and power particularly in relational trauma, like sexual violence. So we see from this definition that when trauma occurs, voice is silenced, relationship is broken, and oftentimes replaced with isolation. A few weeks ago, Aswan talked about the concept of shame and how it makes us feel unworthy of connection. So sometimes part of that relational uh, re- relationship even replaced with isolation comes from deep-seated shame, and power is replaced with powerlessness. This means that if we want to respond well to sexual violence in a way that's healing and restorative, it starts with the restoration of voice, relationship, and power, the image of God as seen as a, in other people. So let me take this back to listening, the importance of listening. And the invitation for the church to be a space where survivors' voices are heard and believed. Trauma helps to explain why disclosure rates for sexual violence are so low. You know, we've all heard this question, why didn't she just say something? Why didn't she tell me? Hopefully, trauma can help us start to connect the dots between why this could be so hard. Fear, helplessness, isolation, shame, anxiety, brain-altering stress. Restoration of power means that survivors decide when, how, and with whom they want to disclose, if ever. It also means that they choose how they want to pursue justice and what type of support they might want or not want. Restoration of voice happens when in our relationships, in our maybe one-day spaces of community or service teams... That we become a, a people, a place where people know that if they do choose to disclose, they'll not only be listened to, but they'll be believed. I just want to acknowledge that for, for all of us, there are many different emotions that come up when you encounter or hear about sexual, sexual exploitation. And yet, it's really important that we resist the temptation to blame, judge. minimize someone's experience. Can you imagine that if you were experiencing any number one of, any um, number of those symptoms that were up on that crazy trauma slide, and you told someone about it and they questioned whether it really happened or whether you were exaggerating, what that would feel like. I understand and we understand that when sexual violence occurs, both the person Who has experienced it and the person who has perpetrated it are impacted, and their personhood is injured and in need of healing. And this is where, regardless of how things unfold, I would invite us back to a posture of lament. Lament is a way to acknowledge brokenness without continuing to disempower the historically disempowered for the trauma they've experienced. And finally, if we're listening well, we can also step into restoration of relationship by coming alongside our brothers and sisters that have been wronged in their pursuit of justice, whatever that may look like for them. Some victims might want to go to the police, others might want to confront the person who has wronged them in a safe or restorative way, and others might simply just want you to listen and sit and lament with them. We must listen before we act, but incarnational listening often leads us to actively stepping in to someone's experience with them. So this morning, as Jordan said, Renaissance is stepping into a huge space. And we know that as a church, we have a long way to go in our response towards sexual violence, especially as an institution. We're working on a clear and transparent plan for how Renaissance wants to handle situations that comes up. The church is digging into its blind spots and getting informed. And I just want you to know that as we wrap up today, the heart of Renaissance is committed to these last two points. It's committed to continued learning and resourcing, to leading and responding to this injustice of sexual violence. So I'm going to invite all of you actually to stand with us as Jordan leads us in a prayer of lament.
0: Our Father, we lament the reality of sexual violence all across New York City. We grieve the suffering of women and girls, too often, by the hands of men happening in our workplaces, our communities, and in our churches. Father, is this the world that you have for our mothers, our sisters, and our daughters? Are you not the God who said, we are all fearfully and wonderfully made? Yet, why must she have to constantly fear sex- so much aggression? Why must she have to suffer constant objectification? Are you not the God who has called us all precious and honored in your sight, created for your glory? Yet, why must she be buried under the weight of shame? <clears throat> How can you tolerate this God? Does she not bear your image? Or are there those who created more in your image than others? Are film producers and politicians created more in your image than her? Our policemen and pastors created more in your image than her. If not, and we are all equal image bearers, then why, God, must her divine image be the one that is repeatedly dismissed, deformed, and denied so that their public images can be defended? Oh, God, deliver us from this madness. In faith, we believe that you see every victim of sexual violence, every survivor of sexual harassment, every survivor of sexual abuse, every survivor of rape, So God, we pray for your protection, deliverance, and restoration. We pray for justice for exploiters, and repentance for offenders. Father, hear our prayers. We acknowledge the ways that the church has historically abused scripture to justify the mistreatment of women. We confess how we as a church may have directly, indirectly, or unknowingly contributed to systems that treat women less than what you have called us. We praise you, Father, and long for your kingdom to come where there will be no more sexual violence. We are grateful to serve a king who took a stand against violence by becoming a victim of violence by the hands of men, laying down his life for us on the cross. And we pray all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, your Son, and our Lord. Amen.